Welcome everyone to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Kent. Whomever you are, wherever you have come from, whomever you love, we welcome you. All those of goodwill are welcome among us this morning. My name is Cal Fry, your morning service leader, and I am a member of this congregation. We're glad to have you with us this morning. Who is there that can make muddy water clear? But if it is allowed to remain still, it will gradually become clear of itself. Be sparing of speech, and things will come right of themselves. I hear that the polls are open Tuesday. All day. But today I say the polls are not just open on a Tuesday in November. I say they are open every day. Every hour. Even here. Even now. Right now I am going to vote for that robin's egg blue sky. The vanilla clouds, the purple shadow spreading under the ginkgo tree. I am going to vote for tulips and red buds. I am going to vote for love that does not have to run in someone else's circles in order to be love. I'm going to vote the homeless into homes. I'm going to vote the uneducated into classrooms that teach them in the way they learn best not the way that would be the most convenient. I'm going to vote the sick into healing, the lost into belonging. I'm going to vote right now for the right to dream of a world where the word politics doesn't stop me in my tracks and where the word honor still has a few good meanings left. I'm going to vote right now for the power of free people to actually be free, no matter who they are, no matter who has abandoned them, no matter who hates them. I actually am going to vote for love. I'm going to vote for truthfulness as the norm, not the exception. I'm going to vote for a world that doesn't vote for killing, control, and swagger. I'm going to vote for you. I'm going to vote for me. Right now. Right here. Silently, perhaps. But for real. Come. Let us worship together. Remain standing, please, and let's go over the Salem Covenant, which you'll find in your order of service. It's not the usual one. I've gone back to 1629 for this. You'll recognize it, I think. We covenant with one another and do bind ourselves together in the presence of this religious community to express our deepest and most cherished convictions as they are borne by each person to find a common vision for a better world, to seek the life of the Spirit as it is known by each person, choosing with reverence its name, 
and to walk together in the way of truth and love as it is shown to us and to all people in word and in deed. Failing the technological approach, we will do this the old-fashioned way. <laughs> My story this morning is The Three Questions by John Muth. I love this book. It is based on the work of Leo Tolstoy, but it has resonances in other religious traditions. So there once was a boy named Nikolai who sometimes felt uncertain about the right way to act. I want to be a good person, he told his friends, but I don't always know the best way to do that. Nikolai's friends understood and they wanted to help him. If only I could find answers to my three questions, Nikolai continued, then I would always know what to do. What is the best time to do things? Who is the most important one? And what is the right thing to do? Nikolai's friends considered his first question. Then Sonia the Heron spoke. To know the best time to do things, one must plan in advance, she said. Gogol the monkey, who had been rooting through some leaves to find something good to eat, said you will know when to do things if you watch and pay close attention. Then Pushkin, the dog who was just dozing off, rolled over and said, you can't pay attention to everything yourself. You need a pack to keep watch and help you decide when to do things. For example, Gogol, a coconut is about to fall on your head. Nikolai thought a moment. Then he asked his second question. Who is the most important one? Those who are closest to heaven, said Sonia, circling up into the sky. Those who know how to heal the sick, said Gogol, stroking his bruised noggin. Those who make the rules, growled Pushkin. Nikolai thought some more. Then he asked the third question, what is the right thing to do? Flying, said Sonia. Having fun all the time, laughed Gogol. Fighting, barked Pushkin right away. And then the boy thought for a long while. He loved his friends. He knew they were trying their best to help him answer his questions, but their answers didn't seem quite right. Then an idea came to him. I know, he thought. I will ask Leo the turtle. He has lived a very long time. Surely he will know the answers I am looking for. Nikolai, this little speck down here, 
hiked high up into the mountains where the old turtle lived all alone. When Nikolai arrived, he found Leo digging a garden. The turtle was old, and digging was hard for him. I have three questions, and I came to ask your help, Nikolai said. When is the best time to do things? Who is the most important one? What is the right thing to do? Leo listened carefully, but he just smiled. Then he went on with his digging. You must be tired, Nikolai said at last. Let me help you. The turtle gave him his shovel and thanked him. And because it was easier for a young boy to dig than it was for an old turtle, Nikolai kept on digging until the rows were finished. But just as he finished, the wind blew wildly and rain burst from darkened clouds. As they moved toward the cottage for shelter, Nikolai suddenly heard a cry for help. Running down the path, he found a panda whose leg had been injured by a fallen tree. Carefully, Nikolai carried her into Leo's house and made a splint for her leg with a stick of bamboo. The storm raged on, banging at the doors and windows. The panda woke up. Where am I, she said. And where is my child? The boy ran out of the cottage and down the path. The roar of the storm was deafening. Pushing against the howling wind and drenching rain, he ran farther into the forest. There he found the panda's child, cold and shivering on the ground. The little panda was wet, wet and scared, but alive. Nikolai carried her inside and made her warm and dry. Then he laid her in, his, in her mother's arms. Leo smiled when he saw what the boy had done. The next morning, the sun was warm, birds sang, and all was well with the world. The panda's leg was healing nicely, and she thanked Nikolai for saving her and her baby from the storm. At that moment, Sonia, Gogol, and Pushkin arrived to make sure everyone was all right. Nikolai felt great peace within himself. He had wonderful friends, and he had saved the panda and her child. But he also felt disappointed. He still had not found the answers to his three questions. So he asked Leo one more time. The old turtle looked at the boy. But your questions have been answered, he said. They have, asked the boy. Yesterday, if you had not stayed to help me dig my garden, you wouldn't have heard the panda's cries for help in the storm. Therefore, the most important time was the time you spent digging in the garden. The most important one at that moment was me. And the most important thing to do was to help me with my garden. Later, when you found the injured panda, 
The most important time was the time you spent mending her leg and saving her child. The most important ones were the panda and her baby. And the most important thing to do was to take care of them and make them safe. Remember then that there's only one important time, and that time is now. The most important one is always the one you are with. And the most important thing is to do good for the one who is standing at your side. For these, my dear boy, are the answers to what is most important in the world. This is why we are here. At this quiet time and in this place of worship, we would seek to know more deeply what it means to know the important questions and to love one another. Let this be a place where we find ways to do good for those with whom we walk, whether here in our community or in the wider world outside these walls. Let this be a place where when we most need it, we can find the support and strength we need to carry on. Let this be our place. Why are we here? I don't mean this in the existential sense, but in the very real and immediate one. Why are we meeting this Sunday morning in this room? What is the purpose of religion for you today? Reverend David Bumba, the professor of ministry at Meadville Lombard UU Seminary says, religion is serious business. It matters not only what we believe, but how we act on those beliefs. We can follow our beliefs too strongly, hold them too firmly, act with righteous fervor when we just know we're right. To have at least a few doubts is more than normal for any religious practitioner. I'd say if you're doing it right, doubt is required. Of course, it's been said that constant doubts marks a conversion to Unitarian Universalism. <laughs> but with doubt, we see ourselves as human, and we can laugh at our own mistakes and misunderstandings. And then we can also turn around and try to put things right. I think this is the essence of what reverence means to me. Religion is serious business, but even religion can be taken too seriously. When we take ourselves too seriously, we become blind to our surroundings. What we commonly call irreverence can be just what is needed to restore the balance, to permit us to see ourselves again as human, and to see beyond that to the really worthy things, to restore a genuine reverence. The philosopher Paul Woodruff says, reverence runs across religions and even outside them, through the fabric of any community, however secular. For example, voting is a ceremony 
It is an expression of reverence, not for our government or for our laws, not really for anything man-made, but for the very idea that ordinary people are more important than the juggernauts that seem to rule them. If we do not understand why we should vote in this country, that is because we have lost the meaning of ceremony. And the meaning of ceremony is to hold something with reverence. How do atheists worship? We come together to honor that which we find worthy. How do we tell what is worthy? We question until we understand. Don't get me wrong, I'm not up here to tell you how to vote. Our little school district up in Oberlin has a major bond levy on the ballot to begin at the construction of a new school campus, one that eventually will house all of our students. I have served on many levy campaigns in the past, although my current schedule has forced me to sit this one out. This is a considerable and a contentious issue, and good people, people I know and love, can be found on both sides of this levy debate. I honestly do not know which way it will be decided. And that's a good thing, I think. Both sides have good arguments and valid concerns, and the debate remains civil, for the most part, so far as I can tell. Building construction, as this congregation will discover, yes, yes we will, Building construction brings contention and compromise. We find we don't all have the same goals, but we are only building one building. So we strive to find a way to accommodate most of our goals together. It is as true building a building as in building a country, if we can remember. Let me be concrete. Rather, let me talk about concrete. (laughs) Oddly enough, we talk a lot about concrete in my house, and there's more to it than you might think. Concrete is strongest when it's compressed. Many of us also toughen up a bit under pressure. Where concrete fails is under tension, when it's being pulled apart. One prime place where concrete is under tension is at the bottom of a beam or a bridge where gravity wants to bend the beam the most. A good way of strengthening that concrete is to convert that tension to compression by stretching steel cables which serve to pull the beam together more strongly than gravity is pulling it apart. This strengthening is a dynamic act. The stretch of the cables keeps pushing the concrete together through the lifetime of the bridge. On the molecular scale, a similar kind of locked-in tension serves to make steel or glass more durable. 
Each atom in the structure is pulled by its neighbors, making the whole much stronger. We say such a material has been tempered. Again, a dynamic play of tension and strength. From tension, we may be tempered. Again, this is a useful tool. You know, one other place I've seen this work is watching Brad with his camera because often he pulls the strap taut between his neck and the camera or with his hand, and he uses the tension to stabilize his shot. Then when the photo is captured, he relaxes again. We could stand to do more of that, the relaxing part, I mean. (laughs) People are not concrete or steel. Ours is a kind of strength that weakens and grows stronger, one that often needs support from others to be maintained. And sometimes, instead of support, we offer a destructive form of pressure and tension. Unitarian Universalists are passionate people. We have our causes and our projects. Typically, a congregation has as many projects as half the number of members. How do we choose which one the church should support? False choices, my friend. False choices. In a congregation I know of, one member became a dedicated volunteer with Family Promise, some places known as the Interfaith Hospitality Network. It's a program that works with homeless families to help them find employment and ultimately get them into stable housing. Families spend their days in training and overnight they are housed in one local church or another with volunteers staying with them and providing meals during their stay. Each week, the group rotates to a different church. As you can see, it takes many churches to keep the program going. And each week, the host church is providing lots of support. But not everyone was willing or able to help with the effort. This has to be okay. We are not all in the same position to offer our time, sleep on an uncomfortable and chilly air mattress in a church basement, cook a meal for 15, or otherwise support a project that the whole church, the whole church was working on. These people are not hard-hearted. Some of them need nearly as much support as the homeless families we hosted. They had no energy to spare. We have to give them room. This has to be okay. You can't all vote for my candidate. In the end, one church teamed up with the Methodists to share the load. The Methodists brought food that they prepared in their big kitchen, and the UUs and the Methodists took turns and shifts staying overnight as needed, using the UU building for the week. Meetings were rescheduled or moved as needed to give space to the families. And the folks who started the fellowship's involvement in the program, they accomplished a good thing. But in the end, the demands of the program grew more burdensome than the congregation was able to sustain. 
and the fellowship stopped hosting the program. In Cuyahoga County, for example, Family Promise was able to acquire a building of their own to house their client families. But not every program has similar opportunities or similar needs. The Family Promise story is not a failure. The program helped many families while the UUs were hosting them. That it was not sustainable may be as much due to the structure of the program as any limitation of the abilities of the congregations. I know other congregations that do not participate for reasons of their own. Certainly larger congregations can more easily find the resources to support a program like that. And a larger congregation may not, need the fee, may not feel the tension on each member to pull his own weight in tackling such a challenge. Such desires to get everybody on board and everybody participating when they cannot can pull a community apart. My family came to this church in search of community, and we found it. And then we moved to Oberlin the very next year, because life is like that. And we went in search of community again. Oberlin's congregation at the time had a chalice made of a circle of human figures holding hands, all looking at the light, very symbolic. Later on, I came to believe that that chalice was backwards, that the figures should be looking out with the warmth at their back, looking out into the wider community. And now I realize, like the god Janus, we should be looking both ways. It said, if you ask two Unitarian Universalists for their opinion on an issue, you'll get at least three answers. <laughs> it's very difficult to get a unanimous decision among our people. Fun fact, formal consensus doesn't mean 100% agreement. It only means that while I may still disagree with you, I won't stand in your way. Go. It's a little different than majority opinion. I guarantee that there are differences in opinion within this room over issues and candidates on Tuesday's ballot just as it's certain that we're not all in unanimous agreement over anything this church chooses to do. But whatever our differences, this community has agreed to walk together in the way of truth and love as it is shown to us and to all people in word and in deed. Our covenant today is merely a little more concise than the one from our church in Salem back in 1629. Most frequently, equilibrium is maintained through dynamic process. A rock standing on the ground is stable, but so is a bridge cantilevered over space, provided there's enough tension built in to balance the force of gravity pulling it downward. This congregation, like most human activities, is much more like a bridge than a rock. Our strength comes from each one of us 
supporting the others when and how we need. Look outward. There's a lot of work for us to do. But don't fail to also look within. We are indeed stronger together when we support each other. That is why we are here. I'd like to bring you a moment from Philip Simmons' book, Learning to Fall, The Blessings of an Imperfect Life. Simmons was an English professor who was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, in his late 30s. He moved with his wife and young children to New Hampshire, where he wrote a book of spiritual memoirs on living while facing an incurable illness. This is from his chapter, Mud Season. In March and early April in our town, over 70 miles of dirt roads turned to mud, and most of our driveways too. Paved roads are too expensive for us. We are simply too far flung. Mud coats the flanks of our cars, splatters our clothes, cakes our shoes. Children here, of course, are mud connoisseurs. In their school art classes, my kids are handed sponges and brown paint and told to do paintings of mud. After school, I meet them where the bus drops them off on the paved state road, and we walk home through the real thing. We stomp and squish, we poke and stir, we sample textures and colors. Sometimes it takes us nearly an hour to walk the quarter mile. Children so much closer to the source of life seem in touch with their muddy origins. From dust you came, the priests used to tell me, thumbing my forehead with ashes. Dust, yes, but for there to be life, you have to add water, and we know what that makes. We all, of course, go through personal mud seasons, and these can occur at any time of year. We suffer illness and depression, the loss of loved ones, failed or failing marriages, crises of faith, in ourselves, in others, in our gods. But personal mud seasons need not be brought on by things so great as these. Humans have a peculiar talent for misery. And lacking big reasons for unhappiness, we make ingenious use of small ones all the bounced check and runny nose occasions of woe. I've learned, though, that our need for mud goes much deeper than our need to pity ourselves. We need the mud for what grows from it. Every mud season is a kind of death, with resurrection lying on the other side. In the mud painting my daughter did at school, The great brown swath across the bottom two-thirds of the paper is topped with tiny, bright flowers. May the love that is the doctrine of this church also be the strength and the spirit of this congregation and of our individual lives. Remember that there is only one important time, and that time is now. 
The most important one is always the one you are with. And the most important thing is to do good for the one who is standing at your side. This is why we are here.